Well, good morning, New Day. Thanks so much for coming out. For those of you here in person, thanks for, uh, you know, waging war with this frigid uh, weather that we have going out. When I woke up this morning, it was one degree. I said it couldn't get any worse than this. I arrived here in Enfield, checked my phone again. It was zero degrees, so that was fun. But thanks for coming out for those of you who are here in person. And thanks so much for tuning in for those of you who are joining us online. Uh, for those of you online, uh, I'm digital every week, but let me just address those in person. It's so great to be with you in person again, okay? It's been terrible having COVID, went through the whole family. The staff's been hit like a ton of bricks. I know so many of you have been hit as well, and I just want to say we've been praying for you. Thank you for praying for us. Uh, but here we are back together again, and uh, so happy about that. So that we can just continue our current teaching series called Christ the King. And if you're new in this series, we are studying the gospel according to Matthew. In the Bible, there's four different gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in this series, we are studying the account of the life, teaching, death, resurrection of Jesus written by Matthew. So thanks so much for being here with us for that. Quick review before we dive into this week. Last week, our text was Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. And last week, our theme was the king's ancestry. And last week, what I tried to show you was that in fulfillment of prophecy, Jesus, the Jesus of Nazareth, was born the son of Abraham, the son of David. In other words, in fulfillment of prophecy, last week we covered that Jesus descended racially from Abraham and then royally from King David. Well, this week, our text is Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. So last week, we started chapter 1. This week, we'll finish it. But our theme this week is not the king's ancestry. Our theme this week is the king's birth. And this week, I hope to show you that in fulfillment of prophecy, Jesus was miraculously born of the virgin. So again, our theme this week, the king's birth. Now, the reality is there's been some pretty spectacular birth stories in human history. Time doesn't permit to go back thousands of years, uh, but I certainly can go back the last 75 to 100. In 1934, the Dion quintuplets were born. Nowadays, I don't want to say it's not a big deal, but nowadays it's like, you know, oh, I've heard of people having even more kids than just five all at one time. But here's the deal. In 1934, no one even thought this was possible. So in 1934, this was nothing, uh, short, this was nothing short of miraculous. Not to be outdone, in 1973, the Stanex had their sextuplets, all right? The very first set of six children born all at once to survive. Now, uh, John and Kate plus eight, all right, they, they made sextuplets mainstream, uh, but the Stanex uh, were the sextuplets OG, okay? They were the first, all right? And this was pretty amazing too, speaking of spectacular births. More recently, in 2017, this is a true story, you can look it up, read all about it. In 2017, in Indiana, a woman gave birth, get this, to a 16-pound baby. And all the women in the house said, ouch! Unbelievable, 16-pound baby. I like to think in my mind that she was like, well, I can't have six all at once, but you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to have one that weighs as much as six, you know? And then she just went and had her baby to kind of get her, uh, you know, claim to fame there with that. 
Well, as amazing as these birth stories are, the reality is that they all pale in comparison to the birth story that we're going to learn about today. And that story is found in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Let me read it to you. Matthew writes this, now the birth of Jesus Christ, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Again, friends, there's been many spectacular birth stories throughout human history, but what I just read to you is the most spectacular of them all. And Matthew tells the story of this miraculous birth of our Savior, the Messiah, uh, in the same way that maybe Shakespeare might write a play. And I love it as an expository preacher. I love it when the information's organized nice and neat. Uh, some weeks are harder than others. Uh, this one's pretty straightforward. So take a look at the high-level overview of where we're going today. Uh, Matthew begins his account with the prologue. That's just the introduction to the story. And then we see Act 1, which I've dubbed the pregnant virgin. Then Act 2, the just husband. Then Act 3, the heavenly messenger. And finally, we see Act 4, the Lord's promise. And that brings us to the epilogue, which is a fancy way of saying the conclusion of the story. So this most miraculous of all birth stories uh, unfolds much like a modern day play. And so we're just going to dive now that you have the high level overview into each piece of this divine play. If you're taking notes, we begin with the prologue. Again, that's the introduction to the story. And the prologue of Matthew's story is found in the first part of verse 18, where we read this. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Now, here's the deal. In chapter 1, Matthew is trying to explain to us how Jesus, the Messiah, came to be. And in verses 1 to 17, he shows Jesus's human origins. And then in verses 18 to 25, he shows Jesus's divine origins. So he begins by saying, let me show you how it's true that Jesus is the son of man. That's verses 1 to 17. And then in verses 18 to 25, he says, let me show you how it's true that Jesus is the son of God. So in verses 1 to 17, he says, let me show you how he's the son of man. He descended from a man named Abraham and from a man named David. And we covered that last week. 
But now this week in verses 18 to 25, he says, his origins were only human. They were also divine. And so today we see the record of the divine origins of Jesus. So when he says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, Matthew's cueing us that he's about to explain to us the divine origins of Jesus. And so that's what we're going to see today. And with that introduction, Matthew's cued us concerning what's to come. And now he jumps right in to act one, which again, I've dubbed the pregnant virgin. If you're taking notes, the pregnant virgin. The second half of verse 18 introduces us to a character, a young woman named Mary. We read this. When his mother Mary, that is when Jesus' mother Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So here in verse 18, we are introduced to a young woman named Mary. And the Bible reveals to us a good bit about Mary, and I want you to get to know her. So I want you to understand first and foremost this. Mary was a godly young woman. And that she was a woman of great faith. You see, the angel of the Lord came to her and said, you are going to be the means by which God's promised Messiah, his great king that he's promised, is going to come into the world. Now, she knew that she had never been with a man. And so this was unbelievable. This was miraculous. Yet Mary not only believed it was possible, she believed it would happen. And that's why her relative Elizabeth says this of her in Luke chapter 1, verse 45. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord through the angel Gabriel. So Mary was a woman of great faith. But not only that, she was also a woman who was submissive to the will of the Lord. When Gabriel came to her and said, Mary, this is how God wants to use your life. He wants to use you to be the means through which his promised king, his Messiah comes into the world. Here's how Mary responded in Luke 1.38. She said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Not only though was she submissive to God's will, Mary knew her Bible. Mary knew her Bible. When she was told by the angel Gabriel that the Messiah was going to be born through her, Mary immediately in her mind went back to Genesis chapter 12, where God promised Abraham that one day he would show mercy on the whole world by sending a savior to rescue mankind from the penalty that God's law demanded for sin. And so when the angel Gabriel told her that she would be used of God in this way, her mind goes right to Genesis 12. And here's what she says in Luke chapter 1, verses 46 to 55. Here's kind of the summary of it. Mary exclaims, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Note that word, Savior. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, to his offspring, forever. In other words, oh my goodness, what angel, the angel Gabriel is telling me, this is none other than what God has promised through Abraham, that one day he would send a savior into the world, and I am going to be used as the means by which this savior comes. And so she's overcome, 
and she just glorifies and praises and magnifies the name of the Lord. Now, Matthew tells us that this godly young woman, who again, at this age, she was around 13 years of age. So pretty impressive when you think of the age that she was. But Matthew tells us that this godly woman was betrothed to a young man named Joseph. Now, the word betrothed is something that's unfamiliar to most of us today. Because we live in the 21st century. Uh, Mary lived in the 1st century, okay? This is America. That was Israel. So two different nations living in two different periods of time. It's no wonder that we have different marriage customs. So let me explain to you the Jewish marriage custom. A Hebrew marriage involved two basic stages, okay? There was the Kedushin, which was the betrothal period. We might think of it in terms of engagement, but it was really more than that, hence betrothal and not engagement. And then secondly, the second stage was the hupa or the marriage ceremony. This was the official celebration of the marriage, and at this point, the marriage would be consummated. Girls were often betrothed as young as 12 or 13 years old, and boys when they were several years older than that. The marriage was almost always uh, arranged by the parents, often without even consulting uh, the teenagers to be married. The parents would get together and they would make a contract that was legally sealed uh, by the payment of what in Hebrew is called the mohar. And that's just the bride's dowry. That's the bride's price. So again, in ancient Israel, there was the kedusha or the betrothal. Then there was the hupa, the marriage ceremony, where the marriage would be consummated. And then that all was officially uh, made legal by the payment of the mohar, which would go to the bride's father. And it served really two purposes. One, it helped them, practically speaking, to financially afford the wedding that was coming. And then secondly, what it did is it provided an insurance for the bride. If the husband was to divorce uh, his bride, then that money would be given to the bride, and that would be the means by which she would support herself uh, in the absence of a husband. So that's the uh, wedding ceremony in first century, the Kedusha, the Hupa, and then the Mohar. And this, of course, explains why the groom was often several years older than the bride. He had to work, he had to save, he had to prepare a home so that he would be ready to receive his wife. The contract was considered binding as soon as it was made. So that's how a betrothal differs from our modern day engagement, okay? The contract was binding as soon as it was made. And the man and woman were considered legally married even though they hadn't yet had the hoopah, the celebration, even though the marriage had not yet been consummated. It often wasn't consummated until up to a year later. And it was during that period of betrothal that the bride and groom usually had little, if any, social contact with each other. Yet Matthew tells us that it was during this year-long betrothal period before the marriage ceremony, when the marriage would be consummated, that Mary was found to be with child. And the explanation given for her pregnancy is that she was pregnant by the power of the Holy Spirit. So friends, that's act one, the pregnant virgin. All right, now act two, which I've dubbed the just husband. 
In verse 18, we were introduced to a young woman named Mary. And now in verse 19, we're introduced to her husband, a young man named Joseph. Matthew writes this, And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Here we learn that Joseph, just like Mary, was a godly young man. When it calls him a just man, what that means is that he was someone who was very careful to follow the various instructions laid out for God's people within the Mosaic law, within the law that God gave to the nation of Israel through his prophet Moses. Now here's the deal. The law of Moses actually demanded that the adulterer be put to death via stoning. I mean, that's Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 22. But you may recall in the introduction week to this series how I mentioned that in first century Israel, they were under Roman domination. And the Romans had taken away the right of capital punishment from the Jews. And this is why when the Jews wanted to kill Jesus, they couldn't just go do it. They had to go plead their case before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. So even though the law of Israel demanded that the adulterer be put to death, that really didn't happen in the first century because the Romans took away the right of capital punishment from the Jews. So what was the Jewish people to do? How were they to deal with the adulterer? Well, uh, the Talmud lays out the guidelines, the Talmud being the Jewish daily guide for the people of Israel. And I actually read it, and in the Talmud, in Mishnah chapter 1, verse 7, it lays out the specifics of how an adulterer could be publicly humiliated. They couldn't put him to death, so they came up with a way by which to publicly shame the adulterer. But Joseph, being a just man... Joseph being a compassionate, godly individual. Number one, he didn't want to put his wife to death. Even though he believed with all his heart that she had cheated on him, he didn't want to put her to death, but nor did he want to put her through the uh, ritual humiliation that the Talmud laid out for the adulterer. And that's what Matthew means when he says, so Matthew intended to, so that's what Matthew means when he says that Joseph just intended to divorce her quietly. He had no plans to take her before the courts to follow the public humiliation ritual laid out in the Talmud. And now we see why I've, I've dubbed Joseph the just husband and why Matthew calls him that too. So that's act two, the just husband. If you're taking notes, act three, we're going to call the heavenly messenger. Because in, in verse 18, we're introduced to a young man named Joseph in verse 19, we're introduced to a young woman named Mary. But now, in verse 20, we're introduced to a heavenly messenger named Gabriel. Matthew writes this. But as he, meaning Joseph, considered these things, meaning his plan for divorcing Mary, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 
And we know from Luke chapter 1 that this angel, which just means messenger, was none other than the angel Gabriel. And he should actually be familiar to us because he appears all throughout Scripture, not just here in Matthew. For example, it was in the Old Testament book of Daniel that the angel Gabriel was sent by God to Daniel to go ahead and explain to him a vision that he had that he did not understand. Likewise, in Luke's gospel, the angel Gabriel comes to the priest Zechariah, or Zacharias, depending on which translation you're reading. But the angel Gabriel comes to Zechariah and he says, your wife Elizabeth is going to conceive a child even though you guys are in advanced age and you are to name the child John. Well, friends, it's the same Gabriel that in the book of Matthew comes to Joseph, Mary's legal husband, to say to him, don't fear taking Mary as your wife. Gabriel came to Joseph to basically say, hey, don't mess up God's plan. Mary has not been with any man. What is con conceived in her, it's not from any man. She hasn't cheated on you. It's from the Holy Spirit. In other words, Joseph, in fulfillment of prophecy, she is the one through whom Messiah is going to come. So take her as your wife, and when the child's born, name him Jesus. Now, this is significant, in case you don't know. In the Old Testament, the name is Joshua. In the New Testament, the name is Jesus, but it's the same name. One is Hebrew, one is Greek. But whether it's Joshua or Jesus, it's the same name, and it has this meaning, Yahweh will save. So what a super appropriate name for Jesus, for that was the very reason he was born into the world, to save his people, uh, Gabriel says, from their sins. Now, this is significant, and we very easily miss it. So let me, let me just remind you, the name meant Yahweh will save. But when Gabriel comes, he says, name him Jesus, for he will save the world from their sins. Now, in first century Israel, the people were very much looking forward to the arrival of Messiah because they believed that Yahweh will save meant that Yahweh will come and deliver them or save them from their Roman oppressors. But the angel Gabriel comes with a message to Joseph to clear up the confusion. He's not coming to be your deliverer from Rome. He's coming into the world to be your deliverer from sin. And so the baby was named Jesus because that spoke to the purpose for which he came into the world. So Gabriel comes with this message, and that's why Act 3 is entitled The Heavenly Messenger. All right, let's now move on to our fourth and final act. Uh, I'm calling it The Lord's Prophet. Verse 18, we're introduced to Mary. Verse 19, we're introduced to Joseph. Verse 20, we're introduced uh, to the angel Gabriel. And now, beginning in verse 22, we're introduced to the prophet named Isaiah. So we're talking here about the prophet Isaiah, who lived about 700 years and prophesied about 700 years prior to Jesus being born. Matthew writes this. All this... What does he mean by all this? Mary conceiving miraculously, the angel Gabriel coming to Mary, coming to Joseph. All of this took place to fulfill 
what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And here's what the prophet wrote. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Here, Matthew quotes a prophecy given by Isaiah some 700 years prior to Jesus being born. And he's doing this to let us know that Mary's pregnancy, it's not scandalous, it's miraculous. And he wants to show us the difference. Now, this is actually a very beautiful prophecy. And you will appreciate it all the more if you understand the prophecy as it was given in its original historical context. Okay, of Acts 1, 2, 3, and 4, here in Act 4, this is my favorite act. And it's because of this prophecy. And I think if you'll really tune in here and you won't uh, let me, you know, and you'll just refuse to let yourself get lost here in this last point, And you'll just, you know, draw your mind. The Bible says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Here's an opportunity for you to love the Lord your God with all your mind, okay? Follow with me and you will just be, wow, this is amazing. Okay, here we go. Here's the original historical context in which this prophecy was given. It was given in 735 B.C. by the prophet Isaiah. And during 735 B.C., the superpower of that time was the mighty Assyrians, okay? I'm showing you a picture here of the Assyrian, the great mighty Assyrian empire, which covered a lot of territory, including the territory of Israel, now, here's the deal. Not everyone liked that Assyria was in power over them. So take a look. The king of Aram got together with the king of Israel. And they said, let's rebel against Assyria. And they said, okay, this sounds good, but we need more help. We're not going to defeat them all on our own. So the two of them band together and they approached King Ahaz, who was the king of Judah there in the south. And they said, we are going to rebel against Assyria. Why don't you join together with us? But King Ahaz of Judah said, not a chance. Don't you know how mighty the Assyrians are? They will kill us. Well, the king of Aram and the king of Israel said, oh, 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 well, don't you even worry about that. Because if you don't join together with us in rebellion against the Assyrians, we will kill you ourselves. And so uh, King Ahaz of Judah said, well, I'm still not going to join you. I'll take my chances. And so the king of Aram and the king of Israel, they began fighting a war against the kingdom of Judah. Now, here's the deal. According to 2 Kings chapter 16 and 2 Chronicles chapter 28, uh, the king of Aram and the king of Israel, they began fighting battles and winning. Now, Jerusalem was the capital of Judah, and they began fighting the outer territories of the kingdom of Judah, and they were winning, and they just kept winning and winning and winning, and they were closing in on the capital city where King Ahaz lived. And so naturally, King Ahaz was afraid for his life. And, and naturally, the people of Judah uh, were afraid for their life. But here's the deal. They, there was a physical threat on their lives, but then there was a spiritual threat as well. That was even greater than the physical threat. 
in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promised King David that one day the Messiah would be born. He would come into the world as a king and he would rule over an eternal kingdom. And God told David, Messiah will come from your royal line. So when the king of Aram and the king of Israel were fighting against Judah, it wasn't just a physical threat, it was a spiritual threat. Because what was threatened was that the royal line of David would be wiped out. And the royal line of David was the line through whom Messiah would come. So do you see? There was a physical threat and a spiritual threat. And everyone was scared to death of both threats. So this is where Isaiah comes in. God says to his prophet Isaiah, I want you to go to King Ahaz. And I want you to share my message of hope with him and with the people of Israel. I want you to share my message to the house of David, Isaiah 7 says. And Isaiah comes and he says, Ahaz, people of Judah, I don't want you to fear. Because God has promised to send the Messiah through Abraham and one day through the royal line of David. And God is going to keep his promise. And here's how you know that the promise will be kept. And now Isaiah gives his prophecy. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Look at it again. Isaiah says, here's how you know that the royal line of David will not be wiped out. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. In other words, you've got nothing to fear. The royal line of David will not be wiped out. He says, Messiah will come into the world as promised. And he'll come into the world being born of a virgin. Isn't that beautiful? Now that you understand the historical context. And what will help you to appreciate it even more is this. In the book of Isaiah, there's a string of messianic prophecies. Let me show you just three real quick. In Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14, we just read it. Isaiah prophesies that Messiah will be born of a virgin. Only two chapters later in verses 1 and 2, uh, Isaiah prophesies that Messiah will appear in Galilee to be a light to those living in spiritual darkness. And he will illuminate for them the way to be saved. Later in chapter 9 in verses 6 to 7, Isaiah prophesies that Messiah will come uh, and rule as king over a kingdom that has no end. And friends, as you keep reading through the book of Isaiah, you see one prophecy after another concerning God's Messiah. But here in Matthew chapter 1, what he's trying to show us is this. Mary, miraculously conceiving, though she's a virgin, this is the fulfillment of the first of this string of prophecies in the book of Isaiah. That's what Matthew's trying to show us so that we will know that Mary's conception, far from being scandalous, was in reality miraculous. It's the fulfillment of prophecy. It's God being faithful to his promise to Abraham. It's God being faithful to his promise to David to send a Savior into the world. So that's Act 4, the fourth and final act. So the only thing left for us to cover now, of course, is the epilogue. Again, the prologue is the introduction to a story. The epilogue is the conclusion to a story. And having told us about Mary and Joseph and Gabriel and Isaiah, Matthew now wraps up the record of the king's birth as follows. Look at verses 
24 and 25. Matthew writes, When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Do you see why Joseph, again, is called a just man? God commanded him to do two things through the angel Gabriel. Take Mary as your wife. Name the baby Jesus. And here we see further evidence of Joseph's godliness. He took Mary as his wife, and when the baby was born, he named the baby Jesus. Now, as we conclude, I want you to recall that Jesus' enemies throughout his life claimed that he was born as the result of Mary's infidelity. They accused Jesus of, hey, you were born as the result of adultery. There was nothing miraculous about it. It was completely scandalous. I don't know if you realize this or not, but that's what's going on in John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, Jesus is having this verbal joust with the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day. And Jesus is accusing them of being illegitimate children, spiritually speaking. He says, oh, you might physically descend from Abraham, but you are not his spiritual children. You're illegitimate children, spiritually speaking, because Abraham looked forward to my day and he believed in faith in me, the Savior, the Messiah that God promised. But here I am in front of you and you don't believe in me. So you are illegitimate children, spiritually speaking. That's the thrust of Jesus's point in John 8. Oh, well, the Pharisees were like, this is low-hanging fruit. Oh, Jesus, you want to talk to us about illegitimate children? Do you? You want to talk about illegitimate? Were illegitimate children? Here's what they say to Jesus. Here's their retort to Jesus in John chapter 8, verse 41. They said, we were not born of sexual immorality. And this is a, a cheap shot at Jesus. They're saying, your mom cheated on Joseph. How dare you call us illegitimate children? You're an illegitimate child. We were not born of sexual immorality like you. We only have one father, and his name is God. In other words, Jesus, you've got Joseph as your father, and then you also have whoever your real dad is, because Mary cheated on Joseph, and Jesus, that's how you were born. So don't you lecture us about being illegitimate children. So do you see the attack on the divine origins of Jesus? And this is why Matthew, as well as the other gospel writers, uh, painstakingly give polemics, give apologetic arguments to the contrary of the attacks of the religious elite of Jesus' day. All, all the Pharisees are accusing and just saying Jesus was born as a result of something that was scandalous. Matthew comes in here with the argument, no, 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 this was all to fulfill biblical prophecy, far from being scandalous, it's miraculous. So in Matthew 1, we have a defense then of the divine origins of Jesus. Again, Matthew chapter 1 is dedicated to how Jesus came to be. And just once again, take a look. In verses 1 to 17, Matthew shares how in fulfillment of prophecy, Jesus was born the Son of Man. He descended from a man named Abraham through a, 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 the royal line of a man named David. And now today in our text, verses 18 to 25, Matthew shares how in fulfillment of prophecy, Jesus was born the Son of God. Friend, if your 14-year-old daughter 
told you she was pregnant by the power of the Holy Spirit, you should be very suspicious. I have a teenage daughter, and if she came to me and said, Dad, um, listen, I'm pregnant, but don't worry. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit. I would be incredulous, as, as you would be as well. It's one thing for a teenager to make a mistake and then make up a cover story. Oh, I'm pregnant by the power of God. That's one thing. But it's another thing for a child to be born in fulfillment of messianic prophecy. The one story is scandalous, the other is miraculous. And Matthew's saying, Jesus is the latter, not the former. Friends, do you know that there's some 300 plus Old Testament prophecies concerning the Christ, concerning the Messiah who was to come into the world? I mean, take a look. You're not going to be able to read them all, but I just kind of want to show you the scope of Old Testament messianic prophecy. Here's the 300 plus prophecies concerning the Christ, concerning the Messiah, concerning the great king that God promised to send into the world who would save us from our sins and establish an eternal kingdom that he would rule over forever. And Matthew's saying, Jesus' birth, it was not scandalous. Jesus' birth was nothing short of miraculous. So believe in him. Yes, he's the son of man, descended from Abraham, descended from David, but he is also the son of God. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. He's God incarnate. He's God in the flesh. So you should put your faith and your trust in him because he was born to save us from our sins. And friends, if you've never done so before, I would encourage you today to do that very thing. Place your faith and trust in the Jesus born of the virgin because it's that Jesus who is Yahweh will save. Many babies in the Old Testament and in the New Testament were named respectively Joshua or Jesus. And every time an Israelite parent named their child Joshua or Jesus, they were declaring their faith in the reality that one day God would come as their deliverer. Well, Matthew is writing to let us know that Jesus is that salvation that God promised through Abraham and God promised through David. He is man, but he is God. So only he can save us from our sins. I hope you'll trust Jesus to do that today, to forgive you of your sins. Right now in your heart, in fact, why don't you call out to him and just say, Jesus, save me. You're the only one who can, so Jesus, save me from the penalty that God's law demands for sin, which is death. Save me. Save me, I pray. Now, many of you here, you've already done that. And if that's you, you've already asked Jesus to save you from the penalty God's law demands for sin, which is death. If that's you, then what I want to do in closing is just share the prayer that I've been praying for you leading up to today. And it's real simple. I've been praying, God, may you make New Day Church be submissive to your will like Mary. When they learn of what you want them to do, may they have Mary's disposition. I am the Lord's servant. And I've been praying, God, make our church be like Joseph. Joseph was just. He always carefully learned and followed all of God's decrees and regulations in the Bible. And I've been praying, God, make New Day Church be like Joseph in that way.
And I've been praying, God, make New Day Church like Gabriel. Because Gabriel was an angel, which just means a messenger, God's messenger. Well, how many of you understand that we who are followers of Jesus, we too are God's messenger? Gabriel came with the message of salvation. And I've been praying, God, make every follower of Jesus that new day just someone who will give their life in service to be God's messenger, sharing about Yahweh will save and sharing that Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. And finally, I've been praying for our church that as we spread the good news and as we work to use our lives as signposts that point others to Jesus, I've been praying, God, may our church be like Isaiah, keeping close to our heart the truth of Emmanuel, that we're not laboring on our own, but as we labor for the Lord, he is with us. And New Day, that's my prayer for you. God's at work in this region. He's trying to bring lost people to himself so they can receive the salvation that Jesus, who was born of the virgin alone, can provide. And he wants people who are submissive to his will, who will follow his will closely, as revealed in his word. And he wants people who will um, go ahead and serve as his messengers of salvation on this earth. And New Day, let that be us. And if you want that to be you, I want to invite you to join me in our closing prayer. So wherever you're joining us from today, would you bow your head? Would you close your eyes? And just pray like this in your heart. Say, Heavenly Father, thank you for the explanation given through Matthew of Jesus's origins, both human and divine. I believe that Jesus was born of the virgin in fulfillment of prophecy. And I believe that Jesus is the one who was born to save me from my sins. And I want to share this good news with everyone I can. So help me to be submissive to your will like Mary. Help me to always be careful to follow your word like Joseph. God, use me to be your messenger in this world like Gabriel. And as I use my life to share the good news about Jesus, help me like Isaiah to remember the great truth of Emmanuel that you are with me. God, I pray all this in the precious name of Jesus the one born of the Virgin. It's in his name I pray, amen. Thanks for experiencing this message with us. If you've been blessed by what you heard, you can give a one-time or reoccurring gift at newdaychurch.cc forward slash giving or text any amount on your smartphone right now to 84321. We would love to connect with you even more. So be sure to like us on Facebook or follow us on Instagram. And don't forget to find us on the Church Center app for more information about all things New Day. May God bless you, and we hope to see you again soon.